Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, you've heard the horror stories about what's going on in Alberta Children's Hospitals. We're going to speak with Dr. Shazma Mathani. The Métis Nation of Alberta has adopted a new constitution overwhelmingly. It is one of the biggest ratifications in our country's history. And we'll also talk about the latest Canada Food Price Report out today. Not a lot of good news. We're paying a lot. We're going to pay more. I've never seen anything like this in my 25 years of working as a pediatrician or pediatric resident. The numbers are staggering. The um, I've never seen the emergency department stressed. I've talked to colleagues who've never seen the department stressed like it has been. That's the Alberta Medical Association's head of pediatrics, Dr. Sam Wong, saying he has never, ever seen a situation like this uh, in his 25 years of working in medicine in Alberta. And I don't think he's alone. We know. I mean, unprecedented is the word that keeps getting thrown around here. And I think with good reason, we're hearing all kinds of stories about, you know, once again, in a position where having to make some difficult decisions about how to accommodate what's going on uh, in our children's hospitals and specifically our children's emergency rooms right now. So let's get uh, on the ground report. We have Dr. Shazma Mathani who joins us uh, regularly to give us this update. She works at the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton as well as the Royal Alec. Uh, Dr. Mathani, thanks so much for being here. As always, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me this morning. Give us an update. That's what we go to you for. What's the situation like? What are you seeing in your ERs right now? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with using the word unprecedented because we are continuing to see very, very high volumes of pediatric patients present to the emergency department with respiratory illnesses mostly. Um, and many more than we have seen previously are also requiring admission to hospital. And that's why um, we're continuing to see this in the news. We're continuing to see uh new articles every day kind of talking about what um, what things have to be done within the system to try to accommodate this. And it's definitely getting scary. And it's um, I, I do believe that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, that's the scariest part. What's going on? We've been told it's a, it's a trifecta. We have three viruses all sort of coming together with, with extreme vengeance, and that's really pushing us into a dangerous territory. Is that what's going on? Absolutely. So it's a combination of a few things. This, you know, triple demic as it's been yeah, yeah. coined with uh, RSV, influenza A, and COVID nineteen are all kind of uh, coming together at once. Where there are large numbers of infections in, in pediatric and in adult populations, and we are because we're seeing all three of these viruses at once and much earlier in the season than we're previously used to. Um, we're seeing a higher number of patients requiring hospital care as a result of this and getting sicker as a result of of these three viruses i had a kid that you know suffered with uh, respiratory things rsv things like croup all those sorts of things growing up but he never had to be hospitalized had to be treated in the er once or twice why are more kids ending up actually being admitted to hospital do you think yeah that's a great question i think there are a few different factors that are playing into this um you know, one is that we have a cohort of two or three years of children who just haven't been exposed yet to these viruses. And we know it's not because their immune systems are, are 
weaker. It's just that we know that the first time anyone gets a virus, whether it's an adult or a child, the first time is always the most severe um, because subsequent years they've had this immunity from previous infections that we don't, we just don't have right now um, because the protections that were in place were actually working in preventing the transmission of these viruses. And so uh, lots of kids are getting some of these viruses for the first time, which means that the uh, disease is a bit more severe the first time you get it. But also we know looking at Australia, um, which typically is about six months ahead of us with the influenza season, for example, um, as well as with the RSV season, we're seeing that the, the strains of viruses this year just are a bit more severe. It kind of changes every year. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a couple of different um, factors kind of go into this. And, of course, just the, the loss of those protections um, that we have had for the past couple of seasons, things like masking or, um, you know, limiting indoor gatherings, um, uh, mitigation measures in schools, all of these things are now completely gone. And so this is really the true first season that we've seen a drop of all these protections and these viruses are coming back with a vengeance right now. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to some of the things we can do in a second. First of all, I want to ask the, what it means for somebody running an ER in, in terms of the decisions you have to make. The, the, the We know that a lot of people that aren't severely ill are having to wait for a very long time. I mean, th- that's just the way it is, right? You do triage, you make sure the sickest get taken care of first, but uh, what's it meant to the way your ER operates? Well, that's just it, Shay. So, I mean, we're seeing much higher volumes of patients sitting in our waiting rooms, um, ranging in, in how sick they are. And, of course, the way that the triage system works is that the sickest patients get seen first. But the concern right now is because the volumes are just so high that even the sickest patients are waiting longer than they should be or longer than we want them to. And so um, what we're trying to do in the ER is to try to, like, shuffle people around, sometimes using unconventional spaces to see these kids. Uh, We have additional space in in other parts of the hospital that we're trying to kind of staff as well to just have more space to see people in. Um, But again, like those other spaces are not for the sickest kids, they're for the less sick kids. And so the main concern right now is that the the resuscitation rooms, for example, or the, you know, the monitor beds, we call them, where, where the sicker kids get put, those are full um, because the, they're being occupied by kids who need them, who need oxygen, who need to be monitored, and then are waiting for a bed upstairs. And so if those spaces continue to be full, the result of that is that kids who also need those spaces that are in the waiting room are waiting a bit longer. And so we're trying to kind of even see kids out there in the waiting room if we can and get things started because we don't want... Um, sick kids or any kid really to, to wait but the sickest kids are the ones that we're the most concerned about yeah exactly i mean what a frustrating situation to be in um uh, getting some questions from listeners and it's a good question because we know there's been some doctors in the news saying you know what go out and get your flu shots for goodness sake get vaccinated against this flu you can do we know how effective this year's vaccine is for the particular flu you're dealing with and how what's the uptake if i if i go and get a flu shot today am i good in a week two weeks what's how does that work So we don't know how effective it's going to be yet, um, because that does take a bit of time to kind of see the effect of that. But we we know that the flu shot is always um, kind of made every year to to have a best predictor of what strain we're going to see. Um, So, yes, please, please, please get your flu shot. Anyone who's over the age of six months old is eligible for the flu shot and should get it. Typically, we say it's about two weeks until it's effective, but, um, you know, the quicker you get it, the quicker you're going to going to have the the, um, protective effect from it. So. Uh, definitely highly, highly recommend getting the influenza vaccine as quickly as possible. One other thing to note is even if you have had the flu, the vaccine covers for multiple different strains of the flu. So it's still important once you're feeling better to still go and get that flu shot. 
And, and Dr. Mathani, you're talking about you don't think we're, we're at the worst of it, and I think that's what most of the physicians we've spoken to have said, and probably given what we're heading into with school gatherings and pageants and, I mean, all the rest, we know what the holidays are like, a whole lot of people coming together, it's probably going to get worse, right? That's just it. Um, we're, we're getting right into the season where all of, um, the, you know, typical indoor yeah. gatherings start to happen. And we know in previous years that that is even with COVID or with other viruses that that's when, um, things start to spike. And so because we're already seeing such high numbers, the concern is with the numbers of viral transmissions and viral respiratory illnesses getting higher that an already stressed system is going to face higher volumes. I mean, we're in a situation where if you look at Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary, mm-hmm. um, kids who are in hospice care, right? So these are kids who are, who are in palliative situations, who are, who are dying, who are, you know, getting comfort in these hospice um, environments are being discharged home so that nurses there can be redeployed to acute care. I mean, that is just, if that doesn't, illustrate how how tragic and concerning the situation is i i don't know what else is going to and so if that's what we're trying to do to keep the system afloat it's just i don't even want to think about what it's going to be like in a month from now when we get more 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 of these cases coming through because it it really is it is going to get worse before it gets better and right now it's a day-by-day situation on whether we're going to be able to manage it or not and doctor the 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 options are limited right i mean those are the kind of choices that have to be made because we can't just create new doctors and i mean we're it's crisis and and there's really not a lot of choices to solving it is there in terms of within the system that's just it i mean human resources are the are the most finite resources in the system and we we know that they're scarce and they're limited and so the only way that we can try to accommodate the volumes and try to have some flex in the system is by moving those human resources around because we can't just make new nurses right. and make new doctors and make new healthcare staff. It just, it doesn't work that way. And so right now we're in a situation where we have to take from other areas in order to support the acute care system. It's a mess. It really is. Uh, Dr. Mathani, as always, thank you so much for being here and thank you for the work that you do. Appreciate it. We had some history made, some Canadian history made last week as the Métis Nation of Alberta approved a new constitution. It was, in fact, the largest ever ratification by an Indigenous group in our country's history. And uh, it took a while to get there. So let's get some details on on what it's about, how we got there, and and where we go from here. We're going to chat with Audrey Poitras, who is president of the Métis Nation of Alberta. Audrey, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Shay. Glad to be here. So, yeah, a historic day, but it took a long time to get to that day, right? I mean, this has been a journey that's been years in the making, hasn't it? That's right. It's been a long time. When you look back at our historical records, and for someone like me that's been around attending assemblies for many, many years, our people have talked about it all the time, that this was the this was the result. To get to our own constitution, to have that recognition as a Métis government, we are. Um, it's It's been a long time, and I give so much credit to those uh, past leaders and ancestors who stood strong on what they believed in for our nation overwhelming response right i mean this was just a uh, overwhelming response on voting day yes it was it was very um a very overwhelming response and uh I think we've got a very clear mandate that mm-hmm. our people want us to continue on the path that had been set out for us a long time ago. 
So when we talk about this, I mean, like you say, the path has been walked for many, many, many years. Um, there was an agreement reached in 2019, right? What did that say? What was that agreement and how did it fit into what happened last week? Oh, it fits in very, very much uh, as an example. Um, what we signed back in 2019 was the first recognition by the government of Canada after after lots of negotiations, lots of court cases, all of those kinds of things, the recognition of Métis people as one of the Indigenous people that have the same rights in this country as all other Indigenous people. And that helped us move forward on our path of, of finally getting to a point where we could get some resources to actually have um, body put together to do all the work that was required to get to this constitution. Tell us about the constitution in terms of what it says, what it lays out, what the focus of it is. Well, the focus of, mainly of the Constitution is to remove us from under the Alberta Societies Act, where any volunteer organization can become a part of that. We've always known, our past leaders knew that we didn't belong there. There was a reason why they needed a vehicle to be able to work with the Alberta government and the federal government at the time, uh, and that's where, it, we, where we ended up. But that was the vehicle to continue moving us forward in doing what we needed to do to get to where we, where we are today. Uh, so it will move us out of the Societies Act. We've structured a new model of governance, a Métis government, and that's what the Constitution does, is put us into our own um, government model, which now we have a lot of work to do to provide all the, the laws that fall out of that Constitution, which we will be doing. We have a transition committee that's been put into place that will start that immediately. We have a laws group that will make sure all the laws are there. The transition committee will meet with our current regions and locals the way they're structured today to make sure that everything they've done up to this point continues to be able to move over into our new government model. Yes, so there's a lot of work to do, but it's it's you know, it's good. You're right. I mean, it's a huge job. It's a massive massive undertaking. Where do you start? What are the priorities? What's the what's the first thing that you want to get working on? Well, right now we have our uh, our leadership have appointed a transition committee to actually start dealing with all of those locals and regions to make sure that everything that they've done will be carried forward. That, that'll, that'll happen right away. Of course, the big first real big thing coming up will be um, our, our leadership extended the current election of our leadership uh, from September 22 to September 2023. So now we need to have all the laws and everything into place to um, have that election in September of 2023. Uh, you know, all those things about how our people are elected, what are those codes of conduct, all of those kinds of things under that new, um, new model of governance. So that's, that's the, one of the big things that we have to have ready for September 2023. And it sounds like a long time, but really it's only about nine, ten months away. Yeah, no so question. We have a lot of work. And yeah. that will come up very, very quickly. Um, in terms of what the new constitution does, self-governance, those sorts of things, um, what are you optimistic about seeing change in terms of the way that the Métis Nation fits within the country and in terms of the relationship with the federal government? What are you hoping to see get better because of this? 
Well, you know, our, as, as Métis people, we are as proud of our European ancestry as our First Nation ancestry, and we work with everyone. We want to work with all governments, and now I think we'll be able to do that. But what we want to be able to do is design the uh, programs and services as an example. What will meet the needs of our community, not have to fit into what someone else believes is right for us. So we will have the autonomy to do that, to design um, programs and services, to have our people elected the way we want them to elect it, not how we have to do under the Societies Act, because our Constitution will be recognized federally where it should be. Um, And as you say, the timeline is to get the elections for September 23rd. But in terms of when you see this constitution being in full effect and self-governance and all the things you're talking about, it's it's a living, breathing. It's going to be a process, right? Definitely, it is a process. I mean, every every constitution has an amendment clause in it mm. as to how you change things as you need to as you go along. And we certainly will be having lots more consultations with our citizens. Our citizens have been amazing in supporting this process since we finally got that recognition in 2019. Uh, so we've, um, you know, we've been able to work with so many citizens to help us get it as close as we can. We know there will need to be changes down the road, and that's fine. We have an amending formula as well. Uh, so we will expect to be out there with our in our communities, with the transition committee, with the law group, making sure that we continue to hear what they put forward. Um, Audrey, thank you so much for being here today. I really do appreciate your time. Going to have a conversation now about the price of food in this country. There's a new report out today. The Canada Food Price Report released this morning. Uh, we've talked a lot about how much food prices have gone up. Well, guess what? It's not over yet. Uh, the anticipation is they're only going to go up. So we'll get into the details on that in just a minute. In the meanwhile, though, we're hearing a lot of different charities around the province saying, hey, this is uh, this is bad. We're, we're, we're facing some real, real hardship here. Edmonton's Food Bank talking about it this weekend. They're really having a hard time dealing with a huge increase in demand, much like many charities all across the province. They're helping about 65,000 people a month. 65,000 a month. That's the size of, you know, like Red Year. I mean, it's, it's absolutely huge. Uh, the food bank's Tamas and Ben's Knight says, uh, history has shown them they're always first. They're sort of like the canary in the coal mine when things get tough. The cost of everything from basic necessities to fuel, it has gone up. And unfortunately, people on fixed incomes or those individuals that were making it before, but because of these increases, are now having to turn to us to ask for some extra help to make sure that there's food on the table. Yeah, so that's the Edmonton Food Bank, and obviously they're not alone. The need is right across probably the country, I would imagine. Um, so how can you help? If, if you can't make a monetary donation, there's other ways to do it. You can volunteer your time, you can donate some food, whatever the case may be, and uh, every little bit you can do will definitely be helpful. Now, as I said, no relief in sight on this. Unfortunately, the latest Canadian food price report is out. Um, we haven't reached our peak yet. In fact, going into next year, we're going to see food prices continue to rise. We're headed in the wrong direction. Let's get some insight here. We're going to have a discussion now with Stuart Smith, who uh, industry-funded research chair in Agrivood Innovation, one of the authors of the report we're talking about. Stuart, uh, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time today. My pleasure. So this report released today says, bottom line, headline, the inflationary period that we've been dealing with for, I don't know, six, eight months now um, is going to continue right into next year, right? Yeah, we're we're estimating that we're going to see this 
for an extended period into 23 and and the projections are that food prices will increase you know in a range of another five to seven percent over the the coming year and when you put that into a you know a dollars uh, perspective we're talking about another thousand dollars on top of where we are right now right yeah, so that pushes a, a family of four up to just over sixteen thousand uh, dollars for for that family. So about four thousand dollars a person. Now, is this right across the board, or are certain things being hit harder? Is it everything in the store, or are certain things worse than others? It's all sort of fairly tight in that band. The the worst one, uh, or the uh, the high, I guess the highest is vegetables predicted to rise by up to eight percent. Uh, compared to say seafood or restaurant meals, which which we're estimating only maybe five or six percent. Really? Okay. Interesting. Now, what's what's causing this? There's a bunch of. I mean, it's almost like a perfect storm. There's a lot of factors at play here, isn't there? Oh, uh, yeah. Sometimes it feels like you know there's too many to keep track yeah. of, but but sort of the the big three are the just the continued uncertainty from the war in Ukraine that that's going to continue to have market effects. That also ties into. To, to OPEC and and the price of oil, so OPEC's cap production again. So we're going to see the price of fuel consider you know uh, continue to be high. And then the other one is the fact that inflation's high and debt are, is high here. So the value of the Canadian dollar has been falling. And and when we buy fruits and vegetables throughout the winter from from the southern U.S., you know the the exchange rate and the the cost of fuel to transport those uh, products into Canada continue to push those prices up now we're talking about heading into 2023 with more increases five to seven percent is there an end in sight still i mean are, are we seeing sort of a break anywhere well the, the one good thing is so so there's an indice that tracks supply chain disruptions and it peaked sort of about the end of january first part of february mm-hmm. and it's down 75 percent in the last 11 10 months so so that's a good sign that that we should see you know more more availability of products and and maybe not the you know sometimes you, you can go into the grocery store and and a product's not there or or there's hardly any left right so i think we'll see some easing in in the availability of products what about in prices though does that help i guess it trickles down right i mean they, they, that goes hand in hand yeah because if if it takes let's say you try to move a product from point a to point b and and typically it would be done in two or three days but due to the delays it takes five or six that additional time is fact and the cost of that then gets factored into those food prices so yeah it should help ease the prices a little bit now and i just we were talking about the food bank before i started chatting with you and we're hearing this from food banks across the country every single day demand is going up i mean we're getting to the point now and you you know you're talking like sixteen thousand dollars you were saying for a family four i mean it's really making it hard for some people to make ends meet and i can just see it just getting worse and worse and worse as we go along i know uh you know doing these interviews in the last couple of years i really feel like the grinch just yeah no kidding coming out right it's it would be wonderful to have a food price report coming out and saying that you know what we're we're predicting prices to decrease a couple of percent that would be much better news but uh, i was actually you know with with every all the factors that are affecting us i was when we were doing our analysis back in in September and October, I was expecting the price increase to be ten to twelve percent. So, so if there is any good news in this, is that 
you know, five to seven percent is is considerably lower than than what we faced through much of 2022. And, and in the meantime, you just got to try and figure out the best way you can to try and cushion that blow. I mean, are there certain changes you can make? Uh, like you say, it's sort of across the board when it comes to different things within the store. But are there different things we can do? Are there certain things that can still be found as a quote unquote deal? One of the things that we've done, and, and this is more with Sylvan and his group in Dalhousie, but they're finding now that, that just over one-third of Canadians are using uh, coupons from the, the flyers uh, or online coupons yeah. or um, the, the points from credit cards or, you know, those various reward programs. So, so uh, you know, about one out of three is consumers are, are taking advantage of those opportunities to, to help lower their their grocery bills so so that's really good news all right it's uh it's tough all over out there Stu, but we appreciate you breaking down what we might be seeing in the future thanks very much sir thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast and if you like what you hear don't forget to rate and review us Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.